In the 1970s, a future top-notch podcasting team was born, and then raised on military bases because their dads were in the Air Force. These Gen Xers eventually grew up and were unleashed upon the world. Today, looking forward to retirement, they survive by dishing out their opinions. If you have questions that need answers and an open mind, if you can spare 60 minutes a week, and if you have internet access, maybe you can listen to Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. Just like part one of our interview with Greg, part two contains talk of drug and alcohol abuse. Um, There's mention of suicide idolization. And uh, yeah, anyway, just thought I'd let you know. Hey, 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 listening friends. Today, we're talking about stuff and things and things and stuff. And filth and flarm and flarm and flarm and filth. Never mind. We're glad you're here. Thanks for showing up. As always, I'm Kenyatta. Uh, one of the gentlemen with me today is Jack. And the other gentleman is our special guest. And just to refresh your memories, listening friends, last week, Jack had a solo discussion with this guest. And today is part two of that chat. And just a reminder, Jackie is rolling his solo podcast into this one. So you'll have to get your weekly dose once a week with Jack, but you'll still have it with me. So it's it's all fair. Anyway, um, I'll kind of turn it over to Jack, I guess, to kind of segue into our, our chat. Okay. If you guys listened to part one last week, you know that uh, Greg is uh, my wife's cousin. They've known each other his entire life. And um, he has had some interesting things that have happened in his life, good, bad, ugly. And um, he is going to finish his his life story. And um, so we're going to let him start in with, uh, with part two of this. And um, like I said before, I think we can all get, you know, inspiration or help or whatever from someone else's journey through life and greg definitely has had a journey through life so uh, greg welcome thank you uh thank you very much yeah it definitely has been an interesting ride um not as many uh not as many steep climbs these days or big falls as i've had in the past um i think we left off with uh i think we covered a lot about my childhood and uh the early days and uh, pretty much everything was still going, it, still going, still moving upwards, even though a lot of things had happened. And, uh, you know, my alcoholism, had, it, it was in full force at that point. Um, I think in these, I think in these days, the cocaine and gambling was still a, a major factor, uh, important part of my life. And so uh, if I recall correctly, I think I would just move to Sedona, Arizona which is an absolutely stunningly beautiful place. Uh, people go there to heal. Um, it has these energy vortexes and all these fun things. And um, that was kind of part of my game plan uh, was to go there and get away from someone by bad influences, even though I'm pretty sure I was just the bad influence 
so I took it with me. Um, yeah, even when I was moving up to Sedona, I remember renting a truck, and that included a bottle of vodka and uh, my ice chest uh, to make my cocktails uh, for, for moving. Because if I was doing anything, you had to take a drink with you. Um, we called them heaters because you make your drink strong enough that it melt the ice. Um, I graduated to freezers later on where the cup would get so you'd have so much vodka in it that it would get below freezing and the outside of the cup would frost because it, it had got below 32 degrees. Uh, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. That, uh, so that's I, something I've never get, done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can spot it too. I work at a grocery store now and I see, uh, I see there's a guy that comes in every so often. He's he's walked in at 9 a.m. with a few freezers before. So <laughs> well, we guys like me can spot each other from a mile away. Um we smell we we like we can we can smell each other. Um literally. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm up and up. I'm working at this fancy country club in Scottsdale. The people who developed it opened up a new one up in Sedona, this beautiful place. I'm a rocket ship taking off. I'm 24 years old, I think, 25. And uh, so I move up there. I start. Uh, I started on July 1st. And on July 12th, I got my first DUI. Um, and so at that point, I drink every day, no matter what. And I was entitled. Very immature. They say that uh, you're, whenever you start abusing something, you, your maturity stops. And so I'm a 16-year-old I'm a kid, basically. And I got this big boy job. And uh, I think I'm just the hottest thing there is. And uh, the world, I'm just waiting for the world just to hand me everything. And uh, so I start going to this bar after work, drinking my double Jack and Cokes. And um, I was such an idiot. So that night, you know, I was already at a, at a place in my life where people were trying to get me to not drive. Uh, even bartenders were like, hey, man, why don't you just uh, stay here in town tonight? Because I lived about 25 miles outside of town. Because Sedona's very expensive to live in. And so uh, he had to go down this mountain uh, to get to where I lived, called Cornville, of all things. I can't believe I lived in a place called Cornville. Um, <laughs> my front left tire on my, on, my, on my little Honda was a little low. And it was fun because when I drank, I drank and drove, um, it gave a little bit. So as I'm going down this mountain... I uh, am swerving on purpose because I like how it feels. And uh, I proceed to uh, lose control of the car, go off the road, you know, change my, I change my tire, thinking everything's fine, start to drive. Well, the back left tire was out too. And um, someone had called in saying that they'd seen a wreck. So the fire department showed up. Um, I'm obviously drunk. And they said, if I can call someone, they won't call the police. Uh, I didn't get cell phone reception. So I waited 45 minutes for a cop to show up and take me to jail. And uh, that was my first time going to jail. I remember, I think I blew a 0.27, uh, which is pretty high. Uh, they don't like that. Um, so I woke up in jail. I'd never been to jail before. And it was a very scary, smelly place. Um, but, you know, I could tell stories about that day. But what the, what really happened was is I didn't learn anything. Because I get, I bail myself out, and I called a taxi because their Uber and stuff didn't exist yet. And God, um, I just shake my head just thinking about this. But in my head, I think, well, I've been to jail now. I'm now I'm a man. You know, like it's like a rite of passage. 
So I get a taxi. We go to the Bank of America ATM. I get cash. Then we go to the liquor store. And then we go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and he takes me home. And uh, I stand out on my front porch and kind of toast. I used to toast God. You know, that's very, very healthy thing to do. And <laughs> said, well, I got that out of the way. Um, and didn't tell the soul, right? Because I'm so insecure. And uh, everyone in my, you know, in my, from my perspective, everyone in my family is so successful and so perfect that I'm, I have to put on the show. Um, and you know, my family, we're the most, the most open arm, loving family that you can get. Um, oh, good God. The hugging never stops. I know that's ridiculous. Uh, it takes ha- it takes more than 45 minutes to go home. Uh, He's not lying. Kenyatta. The hugging? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. The hugging never, when you're leaving round oh. one of hugging starts and then they're like, Oh, well by then 45 minutes or 30 minutes has gone by and then they start over. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that I'm gra- actually enjoy it now. That shows my growth. Um, <laughs> there you go. And I let, and here's how the world always had worked out for me. I happen to have that day off the next day, so I don't get in trouble at work. I, no one knows that hap- anything happened, and I go back to work thinking, well, this is no big deal. It's just a DUI. No lawyer, no talking to mom and dad because everything's going to be fine. The world owes me everything, uh, especially after what's happened to me. It's not nothing's my fault. Um, and so uh, two weeks later, um, same bar, got pulled over again and picked up DUI number two, um, and I blew a point three one on that. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, hi- I wasn't able to hide that one. Um, and it, it was ugly, and I was in jail for like three days, I think. Um, but I was detoxing from alcohol, so I wasn't really aware of what was going on, um, to really suffer anything other than just getting up to go to the bathroom and throw up. But the mistakes, the mistake I made is, uh, I didn't tell anybody about that one either. I didn't, that, at that point I'm being charged with a felony, uh, aggravated DUI. Um, and in Arizona at the time, those, we had, they had some of the strictest laws or strictest punishment. And, um, and that happened, I got, yeah. So that was like middle of July, early August. And so then I, um, I don't say anything to anybody and I've got court and all these things are happening. And, um, I go home for Christmas and I know that I'm going to go to, I know I'm going to prison, but I'm still too proud to ask my parents for help or to tell them. And the whole time I'm there, I've got hives all over my neck. Uh, my mom, my mom and I are pretty tuned into each other. Um, she knows something's wrong. I completely lie about it. And uh, being too proud was one of my biggest mistakes because I probably would have gotten chart would have had a better deal if I wouldn't have gone with the public defender because I was too proud. And um, I was putting on this front that I'm all these amazing things and I'm just this is when I really started hurting myself with some of my character defects. So I, I go home from, from Christmas and uh, January 17th, I uh, was two days before my sentencing. And I called my parents and said, I'm going to prison. And so um, that's a nice little fun bomb to drop on your parents saying, there's nothing you can do. I'm going to prison in two days. Um, and I'm going to be gone for gone for six months. Uh, it's actually a two and a half year sentence. 
and I'm going to be a convicted felon. Needless to say, they didn't take that too well. But even then, I'm just still drinking every single day. I think my life's over. I'm letting myself be a victim. Um, it was comfortable for me to be a victim. Um, you could argue because I was a victim early in my, in my younger days. That wasn't my fault or, or something I could do about it. But at the end of the day, like I never grew up um, and took ownership of anything. And so I'm drunk. I, I remember drinking a bottle of wild turkey before I go into court for sentencing, like a, a half pint and just slammed it because I think my life is over and being a victim. Um, so I go to prison, right? You know, you spend a few weeks in county jail before you get processed. I have no idea what to do there. I've never been in a fight in my life. You know, like even when we were kids in the treehouse, you know, playing war, I always played, I was always political. I was always the president or, or whatever. I allied with a bully in middle school so I wouldn't get picked on. Um, I was always, ang I was good at angling, you know, that in that way. And I was just a coward too. So I just wouldn't fight, if, you know, when mm -hmm. <laughs> someone stole my girlfriend. Yeah, whatever. Fine. Uh, I'm scared. Uh, so um, it was, I don't need to get into too much detail about what happened there. Uh, Cause I'd like to kind of talk about some more positive things towards the end of this, yeah. but it, it's, it is what it is, what you see in movies for, for a good amount of, of what you see there. There are bad things that happen in there every day and uh, drug use, uh, rape, uh, fight. It's all happening. Um, and the Aryan Brotherhood runs the prison yards out in Arizona and uh, at the time, um, I could pass for Hispanic or or white. And I and when I was in county jail, I kind of got taken to school a little bit by some other guys that because they put you in like the you know there's different pods in jail, right. in county jail. And whenever you're going to Department of Corrections uh, for a transfer, they put all the DOCs is what they call us. They all put us in one pod. Um, so you're in there with guys that are, that that are going to be like level four custody. That like have committed murder. You're in there with with just bad dudes, not just DUIs and you know drug possession kind of thing. And so uh, they kind of take you to school there. Like you know when you get there, you know you don't do this, you don't do that. They tell you about what races you can mix with, who you can't, how you can. Um, you know I just want to keep my head down and survive. Um, you know looking back on it, I thought I was putting on a good good facade but i was a i was a piece of cheeseburger like uh i guys took advantage of me um i learned how to fight it took it took the third fight to learn and i'm not proud of that but uh that's a memory that will stick with me forever nothing good about that you know even though i won uh it was a just a terrible experience because i'm not a violent person but i realized that this guy wasn't going to stop kicking me um and I might die. So I got up and started fighting back. And um, I didn't have to fight again after that. Um, and so I get out, right? Uh, and I happened to get out on the day my nephew was born. Uh, that's when Camp Cannon was born at 719 that morning. And I got out of prison at 9. Oh, and, wow. Uh, I want yeah, you, you probably might not have done that. No, I didn't uh, know that anniversary and how long it's been uh based on camden's birthday um and so i wanted my brother to pick me up because of course 
I still wanted everything to be my way. I wanted him to pick me up. I wanted him to bring these clothes. I wanted to go do this. I wanted to go do that. And my dad's there. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, um, don't get me wrong. I love my dad. Uh, but, you know, I wanted it to be my way. And uh, so we, and if, you, if you knew my dad, it's very fitting what we did because he's sitting there bullshitting with me and we're standing right outside the gate. And he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to get the hell out of here. Like, let's go. And so um, then he asked me what I wanted. I'm like, well, I want a real can of Copenhagen and I want to go eat some fried chicken. Um, and I'll always remember this because my dad and I are sitting in the parking lot of Kentucky Fried Chicken at 1030 in the morning waiting for it to open. And it's a buffet. So he's happy and I'm happy. I hadn't eaten any real food in a few months. So uh, I proceeded to eat for about 10 minutes and go vomit uh, throughout because my body didn't know how to process something that wasn't easy cheese and dehydrated refried beans. Um, prison food is interesting. Uh, the things that guys can come up with to cook in there will just blow your mind. Like I've this heard. one dude, my, <laughs> my celly, my cellmate, he, his hustle was, is he made, uh, he made enchiladas every Saturday and uh, they were amazing. And he used trash bags in his, in his bed to make them. <clears throat> I'm, and I attempted to bake those afterwards, uh, but I, I wasn't able to make it the same way that old Russ did. Uh, Russ was doing 13 years for his fifth DUI. Mm. Um, oh, I wonder where, I, I wonder what old happened to old Russ. I still remember his inmate number. Uh, you never forget your inmate number, that's for sure. 184627 is mine, because every three hours they tap on your cot, and you get to tell them your number. So anyway, I get out. Um I just, you know, looking back on it, I just had tunnel vision to the world. I had no perspective. Um, I get out. The place I worked at saved my job. I got to go back to work at this place. <clears throat> Talk about feeling entitled. I did have the world. I did have everything getting handed to me. And this is beautiful golf resort, country club. And uh, so I go back to work there. And I stay sober for about a month. You know, I went to my first AA meeting whenever I was in there. Thought it was really cool. Thought it was fun. Thought it was kind of weird. Um, but I went every day because I had real coffee there, not uh, instant coffee. And that was the original hook for me to go. Um, so I'm going to submit. I'm going to my AA meetings. I'm on probation. But they're not really supervising me or that, that strict. So after about a month, I'm back to drinking again. Cocaine makes its way in about six months later. I finally get in trouble at work. Got fired. That's when I started getting fired for jobs. Um, I was always able to do my job, but they would always just be scared of the liability because uh, they knew I was uh, basically a functioning alcoholic. But uh, it would get to where they're like, we're going to get in trouble because we know that you're drunk. And if something happens, you know, it's going to be bad. Um, and so I, I lost that job. And at that point, my identity was tied to the job I had. Because uh, I was working at these super high end, like it was the number three rated country club in America that had opened in the last, last five years, blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling anyone that would listen to to me about how great it is. And I'm there, so it's even better. <clears throat> so uh, this is the first time. This is when I started going back, going backwards. So I got a job there in Sedona at some timeshare resort, just a, a crappy job as like a sports bar manager. And, um, you know, I'm just, 
undi- I, I'm not taking medication. I'm lying to to my doctors to get prescribed what I want. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't really give a shit. I don't really care. I'm just no no real direction on anything. And um, during that time, uh, psychosis started showing up a little bit more uh, more prevalent where I was getting confused whether I was just detoxing from alcohol or if my hallucinations were something else. Um, but I was bur- I was still burying it, just really um, just basically pretending it wasn't there. Hopefully things would get better. Um, and, you know, I still managed to get, I, st- I got promoted a few times in that job. And, um, you know, at this point I started shutting everybody out in my life that I went to high school with. My, you know, my family couldn't get me on the phone unless I, I didn't want to talk to anybody unless I was feeling great. You know, um, I wanted to put my, I only wanted people to see me doing well because uh, I knew I wasn't. Um, and I was just so depressed and just very insecure. I didn't, I still liked who I was. I still thought I was amazing. It was just everybody else's fault. Classic alcoholic uh, thinking. Um, and I did go to AA and stuff, but I was just getting my paper signed uh, uh, right. for, for probation. Yeah, I wasn't really engaged. And so fast forward a few years, I'm a resort manager, I've gotten a few promotions, but I'm back on the black, back at the blackjack table and I'm back in the cocaine and, and just drinking liters of Grey Goose every day and girlfriends that are way too young for me, just basically doing everything I can to like fill a hole, you know, um, about, about how I, old were you at this point? Nine. Twenty nine. 28 to 31 here. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, and so I was just really unhappy. Um, and I was living out in the middle of nowhere, like out in the middle of nowhere in Northern Arizona, up in the mountains. And uh, I actually lived on the property. It was like 20 miles from the closest gas station. So it was, I was isolated. I mean, uh, back in the MySpace days, my picture was like Jack Nicholson of the Shining, like in the snow. Cause it was just ice. It was really out in the middle of nowhere. And so I just drank in that cabin. I just drank, drank, drank. And then my girlfriend that's too young for me would show up about every two weeks and we'd go all this while I haven't been able to drive a car. So I didn't have, a, I wasn't able to drive for five years. Um, and so she would come every two weeks and take me into town and get groceries and stuff. And I just drank and um, I drank to the point in, and snorted to the point where, I got caught uh, stealing money. You know, I cover bartending shifts whenever people got snowed in or, or whatever. So I, I got caught stealing money uh, to buy cocaine and um, got fired from that job. And it just coincided with me needing to have foot surgery. So um, that's in that time I started taking uh, opiates, uh, pain medication. I got it prescribed a few times, but then I would take it also. Cause I was using a cane. I, I damaged my right big toe when I was young and uh, I had to have some reconstructive surgery done on it. So this, so I'm on, I'm hooked on opiates too. Uh, but I'm not like, I don't know. I, I was more focused on being an alcoholic. If that makes sense. I just took the pain medication cause it, my foot really did hurt, but I also like what it did too. Cause it, you know, made the alcohol uh, magnified and, uh, it kept the, it moderated the cocaine highs. Um, 
so I'm basically just doing like miniature speed balls. Um, and that's just my life. You know, I'm just sweaty and pale hundred percent of the time and uh, miserable. Um, and so psychosis, I, I was always hearing something. I wouldn't see, you know, I, I, I stayed intoxicated enough to, to where like, I never really got sober enough to experience like what is actually going on in my mental, uh, you know, my actual resting mental state, if you will. Um, so let me ask real quick. Did the, did the cocaine help like oh, yeah. sort of the voices or the screaming go away? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it calmed me down. Um, when I would do cocaine, it would really, it was kind of like drinking, uh, like coffee would still get me kind of like nervous. But when I did cocaine, it made me just calm. I would, I could, it wasn't like all my friends that just were waiting to talk. You know, you're just, when people are in a circle doing cocaine, you're just waiting for your turn to talk. You don't hear anything anyone's saying because you're solving every problem in the world and you have an opinion about everything and you're right. And you can't wait to tell somebody about it. Um, and so you just sit there and talk in circles. Um, but it, it really calmed me down. I, I could go to sleep on it. Um, there's some ADD. Uh, it was probably sprinkled in there on top of everything else. Um, that's what my mom always just thought. I uh, was ADD, cause especially with school when I was a kid. I never, never, I was just disruptive is what they, my report card said. Um, and so I moved back home to have foot surgery and uh, that was cool. You know, I thought, you know, we're going to do a fresh start. Everything's going to be all right. I got a couple of friends here that work in the restaurant business. You know, it's going to be fine. And so I milked that, uh, that foot surgery. My parents had a movie theater room and they're upstairs and I was on Oxycontin and PlayStation 3 in their movie theater room for about five months. And it was heaven. I couldn't have been happier. Um, That's the house that they moved to after uh, the one you grew up in, right? Yeah. The one other one in the neighborhood they're at now. Yeah. The Um, in between. Yeah. I was always very good at manipulating them uh, to get what I wanted, get what I wanted. Uh, I still am. I think I've just kind of moved past that uh, desire at this point but up until a year ago yeah absolutely very manipulative of them and everybody else but especially them um that's a whole other story um and so i get home i i get a job working at mahogany turns out i'm really good at wine um shocker uh but yeah some guys can run fast some guys can dunk a ball i can smell better than most people uh and so it turns out i had a really good nap for uh, the wine business. Um, and so I went to work for a really high-end steakhouse uh, here in town called uh, Mahogany Prime Steakhouse. And uh, I had a lot of ups and downs there. Uh, you know, at this point, I'm just a full-blown alcoholic. I just, I there wasn't, I drank every day, at least something. But I, I got drunk pretty much every day uh, from about age 33 on. Um, and so... I'm working at Mahogany. I move around. I get in trouble at, you know, the Tulsa one. They ship me off to Omaha because there's a Mahogany up there. And uh, it's kind of my last chance place. And uh, I do all right there, but, like, I'm literally paid to drink because I'm a wine expert. So people would bring in their own stuff and want me to try it. The sales people, I would show up to work at 11 in the morning, and sales reps would be parked up front waiting for me to get there. 
going, hey, you got to try this. So it was the perfect job to be an alcoholic because I smelled like alcohol and I was around it all day long. It was my job. I managed it. I, you know, have a 60, I think we averaged around $63,000 in inventory. And that was my show. Like, was, and I was good at it. You know, of course I was. I was actually passionate about that. Um, and, but at this point, like the alcoholism, I, I'm starting to get out of control. I'm starting to make, instead of being able to, this is why I stopped being functional. Um, in my depression, you know, when you're already predisposed to depression and then you drink, then you consume a depressant, uh, you're going to get depressed. It's just science. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a basic fact. And so I'm living in this shitty little apartment because I've got a felony on my conviction, on my record. So it's hard for me to get into uh, apartments. Um, and so I'm living in a, a very hoodie kind of neighborhood um, where a drunk guy peeing on his patio is not that big. Not It's not a big shocker for people. And I was that guy. Um, you know, I one night I locked myself out. You know, there's some stupid things. I... When I li still lived in Tulsa before I moved there, I set fire to the patio that I, of my apartment complex that I lived at, uh, throwing a cigarette out, and I somehow managed not to burn the whole place down. But I had to pay for that deck. Um, another apartment in Tulsa, I had to pay for a bunch of stuff because uh, I've had a lot of fires. Man, God, I forgot about the fire we had in college, too. We A lazy boy caught on fire. Um, yeah, you mentioned that in part one. <laughs> <laughs> It's continued. Um, and so, yeah, in Tulsa, I did the patio and then burnt the carpet again in another apartment. And uh, when I was in Omaha one night, you know, I got, you know, I worked nights and I got home. It was hot. And I'm out smoking a cigarette and I closed the sliding glass door and I locked myself out. And I'm in, I got gym shorts on and flip flops. And I don't know anybody. I don't have a key. Um, there was only one option. So I broke a window to get back inside. Uh, broke the like the bed, my bedroom window, and uh, hop back in and cut myself up really good and make myself a drink because I accomplished something for the day. And sat down and right about then I see flashlights and pounding on the door, and the police were there. Someone called in a, a robbery, and that's the first time I had guns pointed at. Me. Uh, so I'm sitting there in the middle of my living room, bleeding, sweating, completely drunk, and there's cops with guns on me. And I'm telling them that I live there. Uh, they didn't believe me. Uh, but they found my ID. They found a weed pipe sitting on the counter, too. So I got charged with, I think it was just, it was a really small misdemeanor thing. But, you know, all this is happening, and I'm I'm still just based, I, I'm not living in the present. I'm just basically stewing 100% of the time. I'm not living life. I am just surviving. And... And I'm saying stupid stuff to the cops. And one of the cops had a, had a crooked eye, right? And uh, and I'm being a smart ass. And I, I said, I don't want to be, you know, like offensive, but like, which 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 I should I look at? Um, two weeks later, that guy pulled me over and gave me my third DUI. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he happened to be where I was. And it was the same cop. I um, dynamic karma. I'm mean. <laughs> yeah. so i'll pick up dui3 um but i'm successful enough i can pay for everything i got my own lawyer and i'm working at the fancy steakhouse in town so i had i'd met some people 
So I get this lawyer that gets me off with nothing. Like my old DUIs, my felony DUI didn't even, wasn't even a factor in this case. I get charged with the first DUI, six months probation, no jail time, nothing. Like it still blows, it still doesn't make sense to me. Um, so of course, of course, everything worked out for me because I'm Greg Hart. Everything, everything should be handed to me because I'm amazing. That's how I took that. I didn't see that as you just got a lucky break, dude. You should do something. No, that's not well, how I work. That's the difference between a public defender and an expensive lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely, and, and that's coming up here pretty soon, too. Because I'm just <laughs> now finishing up a case. And so I get away with that. Life is going on. Two more years of drinking and not doing anything but playing video games. And hey, gambling occasionally, occasionally doing some cocaine, nothing, you know, I'm, I'm doing cocaine like a gentleman on the weekends, you know, it's nothing too crazy, but it's a bottle of vodka every day. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase that way, like a gentleman on the weekends. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. uh, phrase in, in rehab where a guy was uh, talking, because like, we'll, we'll, I'm getting ready to go to rehab here in a minute, uh, but a guy in rehab, the guy that ran the, we were sitting there in the circle and the guy's a heroin addict, right? And he's like, yeah, man, you know, I think I can still handle it, you know, just every so often. And the guy that, like, one of the counselors like, oh, yeah, okay. And you're just going to shoot heroin like a gentleman on the weekend. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he's so like, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. Oh, wait, he's being sarcastic. <laughs> uh, a lot of sick people in rehab. Go figure. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, all right. So we're DY three. Um, I'm just drinking, not really doing much of anything. Uh, get fired from that job because uh, I took some pain medication that the kitchen manager had. I drink a bottle of scotch and just go ape shit. We would party in the restaurant after work, uh, hang out in the bar and drink. And uh, I went off the deep end that night. I. As I was told, I drank a bottle of scotch, an entire bottle of scotch. And I all I I remember waking up and it dirt was ripped and I was on the floor of the restaurant. And um I went up to leave because I was like, shit, man, the you know, the sun was coming up and the morning guys were gonna show up. I couldn't get caught there. So I left and as the front doors, these big heavy doors closed, um, I realized that I left all this stuff and I haven't cleaned it up. I've got to get back in there, but my keys to my car and everything are inside the restaurant. I proceed to shake those doors until I ripped them up, until I broke them. And uh, my hand, I must've broken some stuff in my hands because my, both of my fists and hands were bruised for a couple months after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went off the deep end and, uh, you know, I ripped the doors open, cleaned up everything and just left. I got fired. Go figure. Uh, so later that day I got fired. And I had a girlfriend at the time who's actually one of the most, probably the most stable girl, stable relationship I'd had. And she was, by that, I mean, she was fairly stable compared to a lot of the girls that I was dating at the time. Um, and she helped me. She took me to the hospital because I was because de- I, I was like, that's it. I'm done drinking. And I'm sitting on my on my couch at the house. And I think I had a seizure. I'm not sure. But she showed up and I don't remember, I hadn't been, I hadn't had a drink day and I don't remember seeing her. So I must have gone 
into some kind of psychosis. Because the next thing I remember, I wake I wake up with an IV in my arm, and I'm in the hospital, mm-hmm. and uh, that scared me. You know, that was the first time. That was that's literally the first time in my life I was like, man, you can't keep doing this. Like, you're really gonna die. Like, you're actually hurting someone. She's sitting there looking at me from across the room. And I'm like, man, I owe this girl. And I had every intention to crazy about this booze is, is, or addiction in general. Is, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I could have passed the lie detector test. It's like, this is it, man. I, am, I can't do this anymore. But it starts talking to you. And so she takes me home. She's making me homemade chicken soup. I'm drinking Gatorades. Like, she's taking care of me. I'm going to be a rock star. She takes me to my first day Amity that I ever wanted to go to. Uh, where I wasn't on paper, as they say, in probation. Uh, on paper is basically like you have to go prove to them that you go to meetings and whoever's chairing the meeting. Um, but this is the first meeting I went to that I wasn't on paper, as they say. And uh, it was a great group. And I really thought, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this stuff. I still had no humility, right? Not even close. It's the first time I actually had good intentions. And recognize that I'm affecting other people. Um, that lasted about four or five days. Um, and she's going through my phone. Fair, And I'm okay with that. Um, in hindsight, uh, I didn't know she was at the time, but she's keeping an eye on me. She cared about me. And, um, you know, I, I got caught. And uh, then she disappeared. So then I thought, well, <laughs> I got fired. I don't have a girlfriend. Why does the world hate me so much? So I went right back to being sick. Um, and then I bullshitted my jump my way into another job. I'm in my late 30s now. I mean, the, my 30s are a blur. There's nothing to talk about there because I don't remember it. All I did was drink and work. I mm-hmm. didn't. There's nothing to share there. It's just a big void. Um, nothing I can do about that now. Mm-hmm. Um I'm sure I had some fun, but it was mainly misery. I would say 90% misery uh, in all my own doing. I know now, but at the time it was not my fault. I was just a victim. So I get this job at a country club. I'm actually doing all right. You know, I'm like, all right, I love golf. That's one of my passions. I'm around it. Um, But they can tell I drink, you know, it's not a, it's an open secret. And um, I think I got caught. Yeah. Before I got a DUI, another DUI, I got. Uh, yeah, I got, I got, I had a sit. Yeah, I got sat down by the general manager, and you know we have the big talk, and I'm, I'm going to AA, and so I start going to AA again. I get sober. I think I was sober for like a month or something, which was a long time for me uh, at that point. So in the way that my brain worked was, is I made it a month. I'm cured. Like I got this. I can do. I can still have some fun every so often. I'll just be an alcoholic like a gentleman on the weekend. Um, <laughs> on my days off. Uh, but at that point, that I was a morning drinker. So, and not like, hey, let's have a drink and have some fun. I was a morning drinker because I couldn't brush my teeth unless I had a drink. I couldn't hold on to a toothbrush. Um, and so that's, the alcohol was really, it, it was, it was who I was. Like, without my, not even a choice anymore. If I didn't drink, I couldn't speak. I had a hard time getting my brain to my mouth to get things out. Um, 
and I couldn't, yeah, I literally couldn't hold a toothbrush. So that's when the, the morning drinking a half pint, hoping I don't throw it up. If I did, I would drink another one right on top of it because I had to get it in me. Uh, it's one of my worst memories was leaning into, I had a, I took the top shelf off of my refrigerator and I'd make like a Starbucks cup that had a half pint of vodka and then like two ounces of cranberry juice. And I'd leave it in there with the lid on with the straw. So when I'd wake up in the morning, because I couldn't hold on to the bottle, so I'd have that made knowing I'd need it. And I would just lean my head into that refrigerator because I'd have an awful headache. I'd be sweating. And I would see, put my head in there and just drink that uh, vodka as fast as I could. And that's how I'd start my day. Wow. And, um, sometimes I'd throw up and I'd have to do it again. And that was the worst is when you throw it up because you had such a heart. Then you'd really realize how bad you were. Because I'd have a hard time grabbing a bottle and uh, and pouring the drink um, to get it in me. In in my head, I'll never forget. In my head, I'd just be like, "Just get it in, just get it in, just get it in, just get it in." Uh, so, you know, compared to how I start my days now, uh, that was my morning meditation back then. Uh, was just get it in, and so, and I was like on the executive committee at this country club, so I'd go into these nine o'clock meetings a pint of vodka into the day, you know, in the first couple hours of the day, those were the good, that's when I actually felt okay. But then it, by noon, it was just maintenance, 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 maintenance. I would just drink every so often during the day while I was working. Then I'd go home and black out and do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I stopped dating <laughs> in relationships in general. I was, I got a car repossessed. I, I had such anxiety and depression, you know, because at that level, even a normal person is going to have severe depression with the amount of alcohol I was drinking. And uh, but I was still making good money, but I I had so much anxiety. I could never check my voicemails. I was terrified of opening up my email. I was just always expecting the worst, some the worst case scenario. I'm going to open the door. There's going to be an 18 year old kid with a gut and a beard that looks just like me. It's going to punch me in the face. I'm going to find out I had a kid. Like I created all these scenarios of, of, of something terrible that's going to happen to me. And, and what's interesting is this story I'm about to tell you happened to somebody else. I know (laughs) that I've met in, in recovery. So I've got this nice SUV, right? Well, um, the automatic payments got turned off somehow. Um, I've got thousands of dollars in the bank. The car payment was like 350 bucks. I got a car repossessed because I couldn't be bothered to hit forgot password, open up my email, hit reset password, reset the password, turn auto pay back on. I got a car repossessed because I couldn't do that. And my roommate, the guy I share a room with right now, my sober living, did the exact same thing. And it makes absolutely no sense at all. And mm. I was such a dumbass. I remember because I would go outside knowing that the, my car is going to get repossessed probably, but I couldn't do anything about it. I'm so drunk at this point. I don't know if I was a, being a victim or if I was being hateful. I don't know. I, I was just drunk. So like, I don't remember. Um, I was just trying to survive um, at that point. I'm not even sure why I was trying to survive. I was so miserable. Uh, but when I walked out one morning, I thought it was funny that my car was gone. I was like, well, they went, they came and got her. Ha ha ha. I mean, just an immature child. And I'm 40, 
one, maybe 40, something like that. Yeah, I'm right around 40. Just a, just a child, like an immature child at that. Um, and so I'm taking Ubers to work. And of course, everyone's figuring it out. I came up with some bullshit story that sounded good. And um, got another DUI uh, after I got my car back. Because uh, I went and bought a Mini Cooper. Um, and all I remember about buying that Mini Cooper was signing the paperwork and then them saying, you're taking an Uber home, right? I don't remember anything about buying that car. Um, they shouldn't have sold it to me. Mm -hmm. But it's my fault. It's mine. I can only imagine what I paid for. I bet I bought every option there is. Um, so I had that car for a week and I got another DUI. And this one, they, this one, uh, this one I couldn't hide. Uh, work knew about it. They called my emergency contact. Mom and dad knew about it. And uh, my dad decided that he wasn't just going to bail me out right away. Uh, they left me in there for five days before they bailed me out. You know, fair, fair. They probably shouldn't have been, they were under no obligation to bail me out, period. Um, of course, I expected them to. Um, but that's the first, and I got put in the medical unit there um, because I was already detoxing. What's interesting about this DUI was I was had finished playing golf and I decided to wait two hours at the golf course before I got in my car because I wanted to be sure I was good to drive. I thought I'd calculated that I wouldn't get a DUI if I got pulled over. But of course, um, I hadn't gotten tags for this new car yet and the temporary tags had expired. So that's why the cop pulled me over because I couldn't be bothered to go get a tag. Um, and so he pulled, pulled me over for expired temporary tag. Brilliant. Um, and so mom and dad come up to Nebraska. I end up getting 30 days house arrest or something like that. Mom and dad, are they've had enough. They're, I'm, they're finally, I'm getting the talk, you know, like we're not going to be here next time. And, um, you know, you really are destroying like, Yes, some things have happened to you, but at some point you have to take some ownership of this. And um, let's see, did I did I try to get sober after that? Well, no. I when you're talking about you couldn't hide it, this is true because that was one of the few times. Now, when you went to uh, prison in Arizona, Heather and I knew about that one. All of yeah. the in between until this happened in Nebraska, Heather and I really didn't know about. So. When you're talking, people found out about it. <laughs> we found out about that one. Yeah, no more secrets. Um, so I'm putting on a show about getting sober. I move home. I go to work for my buddy who works down, has a restaurant in downtown. Um, I think I'm hiding drinking from my, I'm living at my parents. I'm 42 years old. Uh, I'm living at my parents' house. I can't get an apartment anywhere. I can't afford to get an apartment anywhere. I'm working for my best my best friend at the time. It's the only job I could get. He knew I was drunk. Um, I drink openly in front of him. Um, and I'm asking him to keep it a secret from my parents. That's it's a good thing to ask a good friend. Um, he apologizes. We have our own codependent relationship at the time. He has his own narcissistic issues that he deals with. But him and I have grown up a lot since that happened. Um and we've had some good stuff there that actually I'll probably talk about. So I'm four, DUI, four DUIs into my life. Got the breathalyzer on my car. I'm working downtown. Um, just kind of getting by. I'm not 
I'm the catering manager. Uh, but my drinking, I knew I could get away with it at work. So I was just unapologetic. So I would use the excuse and tell my parents who live in North Edmond, I'm like, hey, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to stay downtown tonight. Uh, and I had, a, I made up a girlfriend. Uh, so I'm just going to stay with so and so. And so I would just go get a sh- crappy motel uh, where a lot of really bad things were going down. The Waffle House over on I 40 and I 35, that was my jam. Uh, and I'd go there and just black out. That is the best Waffle House in town, though. <laughs> I'm I'm not joking, Kenyatta. That it is better than the normal Waffle House. I wouldn't That's know. Cool. I haven't been to Waffle House in about <laughs> 15 years. Bus <laughs> <clears throat> stop is so. There's the Motel Six. There's there's a lot of uh, human trafficking, drug trafficking, uh, a lot of trafficking going on. Mm-hmm. I got offered things there, and I'm like, I'm just a drunk. Leave me alone. Um. So I'd hide out down there and uh, man, I'm just depressed. And uh, I had convinced a doctor to give me a lot of Adderall for ADD. So I'm taking that and that helps me be able to be drunk and function. Um, but I think that, I think, I think I was taking, I don't know, around 120 milligrams a day, something like that, which is a lot. Um, and, you know, one of the side effects is that some makes some people suicidal well, I was already so much, I wasn't suicidal. I was just always the, well, if I got in a car wreck and died, that'd be okay. That was kind of where I was at. Um, but the idea of suicide started showing up. Um, and it got to where I planned it. I was, I had, I had a game plan. Um, I was going to make it look like a tragic accident. And I was just trying to do the right thing for the restaurant. And just, it's unfortunate. But uh, so I, I drove this big van uh, for the, for the restaurant. And I do deliveries downtown. And so I booked two deliveries. One was to downtown and the other one was to the medical center across, across the highway. And there's one on, on, uh, I think it's fourth street. Uh, you go underneath the railroad tracks and there's a, you know, that, that bridge that goes over, it doesn't have protective, uh, any protective stuff around it. So my game plan was to, to have two deliveries really close to each other and make it look like I was hurrying and I ran into the middle uh, beam thing that holds the bridge up and I just died in a tragic accident. And that was my plan. And um, I was in the act of doing that. Um, I think I got up to around 70 miles an hour in that one little stretch. And I just heard a voice that said, not today. And I turned and got out of the way and uh, didn't, didn't hit it. But I was, I just drove straight back to the restaurant and there's a girl that was a manager there who's in recovery. She had four years of sobriety at the time. And uh, she she was someone I actually talked to. Uh, she was just trying to be helpful. She knew she knew where I was at mentally. Uh, and as far as the alcoholism was, she knew it better than I did, I think. And I went in and told her that I almost killed myself and uh, I needed help. And so um, she took me to the crisis center and... At that point, I, I was ready to to do to try to try anything to to get better. I wanted to get better, and um, you know, fast forward two months, I mess up a few more times. I decided it's time to go to rehab, and uh, my buddy that owns the restaurant, he's a wheeler dealer type, and I asked him to help me because I didn't have the the capacity to be able to navigate insurance and all that stuff. And we had a big sit down the day after Christmas and. Uh, you know, 
we decided I was going to go to, I wanted to go to rehab. And my dad said, you know, mom and dad were like, yep, we'll, we're going to do whatever it takes. And my brother was there too. And he said, I'm, I'll do whatever it takes. And so they couldn't get me in until the first, but I had to keep drinking because I was, you know, they're like, well, what do we do? And they're like, well, we don't want to tell you to let him drink, but like either take him to the hospital and pay for the hospital or, or let him drink until he can get into detox on the first. And so my brother decided to stay and be with me, which is, I'll never forget, never forget him doing that. He's always been awesome like that. For him being seven years older than me, he never picked on me as a kid. Uh, he was always a good big brother. Still is. Damn it. He's a good guy. I can beat him in golf. But it's all good. Um, <laughs> it's the little things. It's the little things. <laughs> uh, but um, and so he stayed with me and uh, he, he was my alcohol guy. So when I said he would, I'll never forget that later that day, my buddy Goldman left. And, he's, and I'm like, well, I need a drink. And he's like, so do you want to go? I'm like, I need a bottle. And he's like, oh, okay. So like like a pint? And I'm like, uh, no, you need to get like a handle, like a 1.75 liter. And he's like, oh, okay, well, that'll be good for like the week. And I'm like, uh, no, you know, it's that'll be good for like the next 24 hours or so. And uh, what ended up happening was he was staying with me. Like we slept in the same bed. And he watched watched me drink. So he actually got to see what it looks like. Um, and it was a very surreal experience uh, for him to be watching me in the morning. And part of my mental illness of de-ideation that I, that I have is I feel like he's in my body. Uh, so it's a very strange, it was a very strange experience for, for me, of me trying to describe that to him. Um, but it's, you know, I, I'm just the, the luckiest guy in the world to have a brother like that that was willing to help me. Uh, you know, he would meet her up, and I said, whenever I want a half pint, like, you got to give me a half pint. Like, that's it. And so he did that, and I went to this uh, place down in Texas that was beautiful. It was out on a ranch. I was there 90 days, and I thought I had it all figured out. I was, I got honest with the doctors. They started prescribing me antipsychotics. The voice, because the voices came. Whenever I detox, everything would come back and come back hard. And that's when I would have visual and auditory, you know, uh, hallucinations. But the, I would start, they got me on a really good regimen of medication and helped that go away. And I mean, I worked out every day. Uh, I I found some version of spirituality there. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, I, I can see whenever I was leaving, I did 90 days. And the, one of the main guys at work said, was like, Hey man, just be open to suggestions and find some humility. And I was like, I got humility. I'm the most humble guy there is. Um, and looking back on that, I realized that I, I didn't have all the tools I needed. I didn't have the right perspective. Um, but I moved into sober living right after that. I went to one of the best ones because, because I'm awesome. I deserve to be at the best sober living and mommy and daddy are going to put the bill. Um, which they did because I was still master manipulator. And uh, I stayed there three months and thought, man, I deserve to have my own place. I'm a grown man. Um, blah, blah, blah. It's all bullshit. I was drunk before I got to my parents' house. Um, uh, it's a ski island. It's 30-minute drive. And 
I had already had a pint in my belly by the time I got to their house. Uh, so I, I didn't do, I didn't, I wasn't going about it the right way. Um, and God, I mean, and when they say you go back, man, they say you, uh, you pick up where you <laughs> left off. And that has been a hundred percent true for me. Like it took one day of drinking for me to be back to shaking the next morning and, uh, to be running like that. And uh, I went back to work at that same buddy's restaurant, putting on shows, faking, you know, according to everybody, I was sober, but I I wasn't um, as soon as I got out of that house. And I had a girlfriend that was, you know, she had her own issues and we were actually good for each other. It's the longest relationship I've had uh, ever. And it was, I think we dated for about two years. Um, but we were, we were, we actually did some good for each other. Um, you know, she got to learn what it was like to be treated correctly, like not be in abusive relationships, um, and what to look out for. Um, and, uh, you know, there were some good things there. Um, so then COVID happened, right. And the restaurant shut down and my buddy who is kind of a pushy guy and, you know, he has his own character defects. We decided we start doing a food truck. We're doing all this stuff and it is miserable. It is it's like working a food truck is kind of like every day you go move your buddy's apartment from one side of the neighborhood to the other. And then at the end of the day, you move all those stuff back. And then you do that seven days a week. That's what working in a food truck is like. And of course, I'm drinking and and COVID's fantastic for alcoholics because you've got a mask on and you've got hand sanitizer that smells like alcohol. So mm-hmm. like it is a perfect scenario to, to hide your alcohol, to hide your drinking. Um, and so I'm doing that. We're miserable. Him, he's miserable. I'm miserable. We have a huge falling out. My girlfriend's had enough of me because I had no backbone with him, which is true. Um, so we break up. I go to rehab again. I go to a rehab here in the city. Only 30 days. And it was just like last time. I'm the most sober, per- most recovered person in the world. Uh they're going to be they're going to be flying me all over the country giving speeches. I'm going to be saving people's lives left and right. I'm awesome because I'm Greg Hart and I'm amazing, and the world should give me everything. But so I think I'm like doing it right. Like oh yeah, I'm in. You know I'm recovery savvy as a uh, a therapist once called me, and so it was easy for me to be a standout in rehab. Uh, I still think it's a beauty contest or something. I I, I was going to win at uh, recovery at this rehab which is not what it's about at all. But that's my ego uh, at work. And that detox is one of the ugliest detoxes I've ever had in my life. Uh, I think I said I was in psychosis for seven days. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember the first week and a half. Uh, It was bad. It was bad enough that uh, I think I went, I went to the hospital once. Yeah. They took me to the hospital once while I was there. Um, and uh, it was just ugly. And you'd think I'd have it figured out, um, start realizing this isn't going to work. Um, so I go back to the same sober living house because it's, I thought, you know, I'm really going to do it this time. And then in my heart of hearts, I was like, I think I found humility now. Um, I hadn't. What I found was is that the world wasn't going to keep giving me opportunities like it was. Uh, no more girlfriend to fall back on. No more job to fall back on. I'd burned it all down this time. Um, I thought that equaled humility, but I don't think it did. Uh, or I know it did. No, that's not the same thing. Uh, so 
uh, I get out and uh, go to the suburb living house. I'm doing I'm doing really well. Uh, about four months into it, I start getting out of that old entitled frame of mind. I'm a grown man. I shouldn't have to have a curfew. And uh, if I've learned anything about sober living and this, especially this time around, is anytime someone doesn't like the rules, they just don't like being sober because <laughs> it's not hard. You make you clean up after yourself. If you need to, if you if you want to go get a few day pass, you can get one. But you have to go to meetings and have a sponsor. Like it's not, it is not the toughest thing in the world. But I've seen it a number of times since I've been here this time. Uh, that that it's 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 not that they have to make their bed. It's that they don't want to be sober. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a black and white. There's a little bit more to it than that, but for these purposes, that's kind of how it works. Um, so I I'm like, dude, I'm going to do this thing for six months this time, right? So I committed to six months. Um, I started, there's a stuff called Kratom that doesn't show up on drug tests. And so I started eating Kratom about a month into it. But I'm sober because I'm not drinking alcohol, I tell myself. And I'm chairing meetings at AA and, you know, I'm putting on this big show. And uh, I decided to move in with, a, I'm like, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to move in with this guy that I met in sober living. And he's sober, I think. And uh, we're going to be rinsing and do our own version of sober living, and everything's going to be amazing. Uh, we've got this. And uh, it turns out we were hiding our vodka from each other um, from day one. Uh, and then after about a month of that, we decided to to not hide it anymore. And we'll just keep a close eye on each other. So that went about as well. He's, a, he's as bad of an alcoholic as I am. He's a 24-7 drinker, too. And so that went as well as you would think it was. Uh, it was unfortunate. Uh, either one of us would be one. Of, here's how it worked. One of us would be doing pretty good. And the other guy would be on the floor. And then we would resent each other. And then we'd switch places. And then sometimes we'd both be on the floor. And that's just how that went. Got a job at some at, at this place called Torchy's Tacos as a manager. I barely remember anything about that place. I was drunk the whole time. And of course, they were just lucky to have me, and I shouldn't have to do this and this, this and this. Just stupid alcoholic thinking. Is it? Uh, is it so, that when you went to Lubbock for training for? Was it Torchies yeah. that you had to go to Lubbock? Yeah, that's when the throw up cup. Uh, I in, implemented the throw up cup in my car because I had to commute to work, and I had to drink my vodka in the car. So I had this throw up cup that I would keep in case I throw up while I was driving to work. Um, yeah, Lubbock sucks, especially when you're an alcoholic. Yeah, um, Heather and I talked so about I that I, at the time. <laughs> we were like, is Lubbock a good place for him? It's not. <laughs> and it's right in the middle of the university, literally. Uh, so, no, there was nothing good about that. I didn't even like the place. I didn't even like the food at the restaurant I worked at. And so I was just miserable, man. And, uh, you know, that leads up to last May. Um I'm driving home from work on Kilpatrick and can't remember if I locked the doors and got the money out of the registers or not. So I decided to turn around and uh, I don't still, I still don't know what happened. I do know I turned around on like Eastern and I'm headed East back to I-35 and I hit another car going very, very, very fast. And I don't know. I hit the back of a car. I don't know if she was parked I still have no idea. 
Uh, all I know is that I told my car and I told hers and I could have killed her and I could have killed myself. And so, you know, I, this is my fifth DUI. I know in the car, in the, in the, uh, you know, I come out, I come out of the blackout, you know, after the uh, airbags uh, got done inflate, you know, the airbag got off of my face. That's when I kind of came to, um, but I knew in the cop car that things were going to be different. Like, in my mind, I'm going to prison for a long, long time in Oklahoma. And um, they put me in the suicide unit of the Oklahoma County Jail. And um, boy, uh, I've been to some county jails in my day, Arizona, Nebraska. Uh, they're resorts compared to Oklahoma County Jail. Um, that place is truly a, it's, it's truly a hell. Um, and they put me in the suicide unit uh, of that area where you get issued what they call a turtle suit and it's basically an apron with velcro on the sides and that's all you get you don't get toilet paper you don't get underwear you don't get socks you don't get a pillow you don't get a blanket nothing you get the turtle suit and it's so you can't hurt yourself or somebody else and so i'm in there and there's traps literally feces like smeared on the walls um there's a guy a guy with really bad mental issues this very very large man screaming at the top of his lungs 23 hours a day banging on stuff 23 hours a day they beat him a couple of times while i was here it was and i'm detoxing from alcohol without any medication um so i'm you know shitting my pants and like i mean it's it was hell um and in my heart of hearts i feel like i had like a spiritual death there like a part of me died and uh, I've never, you know, how you have vivid memories of certain events in your life. Like this one is 10 times more vivid than any other vivid memory I've ever had. And I've had some pretty vivid ones. Something happened in there. I don't know what it was, but I knew that I just, I think I surrendered because I thought my life was over. Uh, I thought I was, I thought I was looking at five to 10 years in prison. You know, why wouldn't I? I should be. Um, so I got out and, I think I was sober for like a week, two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. And, you know, when you're two weeks sober, you're having all kinds of epiphanies. You're crying at commercials on TV because mm. you're feeling you haven't been able to have for decades or years, you know. And so it's a very emotional time. And I'm seeing all these signs about, you know, life is going to be better. And then I got drunk because um, that's what alcoholics do. And uh, I... And that was in June, and I went to rehab on the 8th of August, and uh, I think I barely made it. I uh, I got to where I couldn't eat. If I got, if I was able to eat like an energy bar or something like that in like one a day, that was like a pretty good day. I, I was throwing up bile. Um, it was as bad as it gets. I, uh, I was getting close to killing myself on accident from alcoholism. It was just nothing but darkness. I was hallucinating all day, every day. I was having awful nightmares. Um, just, it was, I wasn't alive. I was, I was, I think, my own personal hell. And um, I somehow, so I decided to go to my parents and uh, uh, I'm going to try to get sober enough to go into rehab. And so I gave them like my credit, I gave them my money so I couldn't get alcohol. My car's totaled. I can't go anywhere. But an alcoholic always has a way. Um, 
and there's this delivery service called Truly, or I don't remember what, but it's an alcohol delivery service on an app. And they saw my credit card information saved. So I still figured out how to get vodka. I was having it delivered to the empty house next door to my parents' house. Alcoholics will always, and addicts always can find a way uh, to get what, to get their medicine. I remember my mom, we're having dinner and she's like, how, how, how are you drunk? I don't understand it. I'm like, I know, you'll just always find a way. Uh, so I made it to rehab. Um, and it was the, this, this detox was just as bad as the last one. I, um, you know, I was in an IV for dehydration. Uh, I was vitamin deficient and all these things. Uh, luckily my liver was still okay. Um, and that this rehab was one of those places it was up in Chicago. Um, and, uh, and it, it sounds fun. It sounds cool, but it's like way out in the middle away from Chicago. And it was the cheapest rehab that my insurance it, that would cover. So it wasn't like anything, nothing fancy about it, except the cool name Chicago. Mm. And this rehabs where, uh, you had to want it. Um, you could get drugs and alcohol in there very easily. Uh, there's a sober living facility on the top level of this med- of this big medical complex, and you could get whatever you wanted. And so I could have been drunk while I was there, uh, but uh, this time I just, uh, man, I just want. I think I just realized I wanted to live, uh, and it wasn't liberating. It wasn't a positive thing. Uh, I think for the first time I was actually scared. Um, I think I was scared because I wanted to live. I didn't know how to deal with that. I'd gotten so used to wanting to just go away. Uh, it was just a very surreal experience. And uh, so I, you know, there I'd already been to rehab and they're all kind of the same. So you kind of go through the same motions of like the material that, that you read and the therapy that you get. Um, so I really focused on uh, uh, the the schizophrenic factor, the, the, the deideation and uh, the, uh, I can't remember what the other one's called, but uh, the, the two main things that I experienced uh, is being out of my body and uh, and then hallucinating uh, a version of myself uh, in, in the room with me. Uh, sometimes it's an evil, bad person. Uh, sometimes it's a little kid version of me and I can smell them and see the buggers running down their nose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, we talked about that and uh I'd never really gotten down about or really gotten down to the, you know, a lot of times they're like, well, we'll get you sober. And then you have six months, then you can start talking about this. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it to be able to talk about the sexual abuse. Like we need to talk about it now. I'm ready. You know? So we really, in, in a short, short amount of time, because I only had two weeks of uh, being out of uh, detox, but in those two weeks, I think I got more out of that therapy than I have in all the therapy I've ever had in my entire life. And I think it's just because, you know, one, I was, edu- I kind of knew, I knew every, I knew what the situation was. I knew what was wrong with me. And I think I was just ready to go. I was ready to deal with it. Um, and so it went really well. And I, and I, and the guy that runs my sober living, he uh, let me come back again. And uh, he was really concerned about me working in restaurants if I came back. And I said, I promise you, I won't. And he's, he's known me for a while. So he was like, I, he's like, you need to get a job that will humble you. It's like, if you, like you need to be like working, like 
you know, in a warehouse or something. Like, you need to get some humility. Uh, and he's right. Or he was definitely right. And so yeah, I moved into this house, and I'm, and this is the house I'm at now, still. Uh, it's the Ski Island House, the Pueblo House group, and it's awesome. Um, and it took me, you know, after 30 days, you start hitting the pink cloud, as they call it in recovery, where your mind starts working. You're rebounding. Uh, so you start feeling better than you have in years in a lot of cases. And I didn't have that this time. Um, it took me a long time for me to be able to uh, really interact with people. I, I really I really zinged myself with the with the alcohol this, the last two years that I was active. Um, and it, it took a good five five months before I think I really started feeling mentally capable of you know, my capacity, my mental capacity was starting to actually come back. Uh, but I was stuttering. I was still hallucinating. And, uh, we're switching around with medications to to get my head right. Um, and I started in Vega, which is a, it's an injection that you get for schizophrenia. And man, it is, uh, it's amazing how well that stuff works. Um, it's like, I, it's hard to describe. I, I feel like I'm a person. Um you know, and I got like five or six months of sobriety. I was like, man, I, I'm like using words that I didn't know I knew. You know, I'm I'm feeling as invigorated as I ever. Have. I'm, I'm a produce clerk at a grocery store, and I'm happy. You know, my ego would not have been able to handle that a year ago, or ever before that. Um, and now I'm just, you know, I don't mind going to meetings, and I I look forward to it, and. You know, and then I hit seven months, eight months, and it just keeps getting better. Or my mental capacity. And I think about a month ago, um, I I was like, okay, this is what normal feels like, and this is as normal. I, this is the first time in my life, about two months ago, I remember saying, I'm an adult. I feel like an adult now. I've never felt like an adult. I've always heard my voice as like a, a young person. I mean, literally as like a teenage or young college kid and kind of see myself that way. And uh, I, whenever I'd hear people talking, you know, pe even people that were in their thirties, I'm in my forties, I'd hear they're talking. And in my head, I'm like, adults are talking. I've never felt like one. And I really have finally started to feel like one. Um, and that wasn't really the goal. It's just kind of a, something that's happened. Um, and it's been amazing, man. Like I'm a house man. I'm one of the managers at my house now. Um, and so I help new guys. Like, you know, I always thought it was all bullshit. Like, I always thought that these guys that were in AA and the people that were in the recovery world saying, you know, it's, it, I really get so much out of helping people. And I was like, man, you're reading it off the, off the back of a book or something. Like, I always thought it was just fluff. Uh, but now I'm starting to get it. You know, we got a new guy literally came in today. He, uh, he just moved in and he's, he's me when I was 28. <laughs> I want to just slap him. You know, I'll be like, "Bro, you don't have to do this for another decade. Like, you can you can be done now." Um, mm. I've got some perspective on it, and like, I I don't have a I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. Uh, so you know, they you know, in, in therapy and in the recovery world, they say you have to have a purpose. Like, you need to find it. People need a purpose, you know. And a lot of people say, "Well, it's my kids or this and that." Um, and a lot of guys that get into recovery are like, I'm going to work in the recovery world and become a counselor. I went through that phase. Um, 
but now I just, I really do enjoy like having a dude like that and spending an hour talking to him today. Um, Cause he's, and you can kind of get a feel for how serious they are about it. Like this dude wants, I can tell he's surrendering, you know, you can get a, you can get a feel for it pretty quick after you see so many guys come in and out and knowing, cause you've been there like you, cause a lot of time you're just looking in the mirror, you know, with some, with a lot of us or a lot of these guys I see. So uh, I, I, and I, and I found out I'm not going to prison. Um, it turns out when you go to rehab and, and live in sober living for almost 10 months and become a house manager, uh, that keeps you out of prison. Uh, so I have a, a deferred sentence. Uh, so if I do six years of, of the right thing, then it's, go, it's not even going to be on my record. It's just going to disappear. Of course, if I mess up, I'm looking at eight to 10 years. Right. Mm. Well, there's that. Uh, as the DA, the DA, I've never talked to the DA or, or whoever the district attorney representing the DA. I've never spoken to them directly. And this lady, it, I've never had an experience like this. We're like sitting at a table and she looks at me and she's like, you're doing everything that you're supposed to. And it seems as though that you are genuine. You are not just doing this to, you know, to not go to prison. And I'm like, well, I'm not. And she's like, I really do get that sense. However, in order to encourage you to not go back to drinking, we're going to hang eight to 10 years of prison over your head. How's that for just some additional encouragement? And I'm like, just, but it's all going to disappear in six years. If, if you, if you continue to do what you're doing. No pressure. Um, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> hmm. For the first time. And I'm not trying to scheme like half of addiction is getting away with it. Like that's half the fun is trying to scheme and be secretive. At least for me and most of the guys I know, half of the fun of it, if there is any fun in it, is getting away with it. And uh, I just don't have that now. Like I'm more concerned about my belly getting in the way of my golf swing. That's my biggest problem today. <laughs> Thank God. And and I wish my dad was, and my I wish my dad was healthier, but. Uh, he he can make changes at seventy six too. <laughs> yeah, and he has. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, I put on sixty five pounds. Um, and I stopped using just for men on my beard, uh, <laughs> because that's who that's actually who I am. I'm trying. That's to me that's symbolism. Uh, it's not trying to fake it. So, <sighs> it's it's been an exhausting forty. Um, but I don't think I've ever been optimistic before, and I think I am now. And with this this in Vega, dude, it just turns the volume down on everything. I haven't had a hallucination in other than other than um, like uh, going to sleep. And when you're waking up is when that stuff shows up. That's when you're the weakest to it. That still happens. But I don't to me, that doesn't count because to me, that's that falls into the sleep paralysis that a lot of people have. So to me that in my, in, in the Greg, Greg Hart uh, world of psychology, that doesn't count as hallucination. That just counts as bad dreams. And that works for me. <laughs> if it's working, then yes, we're going to stick with it. If it's working. <laughs> yeah. Get some ice cream after this now. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, peanut butter pie uh, tonight. So, but it's not my fault. Some lady brought it. Right. 
<laughs> so you have to have a slice. You have to. Yeah, right. It'd be rude not to. It'd be, that's what I was going to say. It'd be rude. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, an adult, that's, what an, that's adult thinking right there. It is. Yes. It is. <laughs> so selfless. It's. Uh. <laughs> yeah, when people think of me, they think selfless. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, for the first time, I, uh, in, in the last five months, I've never lived a life like this. It's something else. Uh, it's kind of like a trip drug uh, high all in itself uh, to actually live like a, a normal normal life, if you will, or my version of it anyway. Um, yeah. And I can handle stuff so much better. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's the it trick. It is amazing how much easier. It's not so much the stuff that happens to you. It's how you learn to cope. That's the trick. Yeah. Oof. And even wanting to <laughs> before it'd be too. like, ooh, here's my ammo. Here's my ammo to feel bad about myself and to mm-hmm. for it not to be my fault. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of faded. So, mm. so that's mm. that's that's sort of my oh my uh, my my butt talk just turned on my my pad. That's what that sound was. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just? You said butt talks. Okay. That's funny though. <laughs> I don't know that. You said you started using big words again. <laughs> I, yeah, I do. I'll, I'll be saying something and I'll still be talking, but in the back of my head, I'm like, do you even know that word? <laughs> How did you, where did you pick that one up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Do it. So that's it. A little boring wow. story. Oh yeah, that was that was a snoozer. <laughs> no, that's extraordinary. I'm. I would I, obviously I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but to see where you <laughs> right. apparently to see where apparently you are now, that's something. Mm-hmm. That's something. Yeah. So it's a miracle. Yeah, it is. It's. A, I don't know what I'm gonna do with it, but I'm just gonna keep. I'm gonna try to be a nice person wherever I can. That's really all i can do yeah and play golf while i still can right golf. i was gonna say golf because that's my yeah <laughs> well golf the golf course is guys in my house i got made fun of for 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 a while but then i explained it like that's where i feel the most connected to anything is when i'm out on that golf course i'm connected i'm grounded i i'm experiencing what what was created for us you know and that 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 helps me be present and that's mm-hmm. what I'm all. That's what I'm trying to do now. It's just it's your place of worship. Mm-hmm. That's your higher powers, the golf and course, I'm, and it that is. helps. It really is that pers- the perspective that I gain there. Yeah, that means that puts me with my higher power. Mm-hmm. Where he's in my, he's in the, he's sitting in the seat next to me on the golf cart. <laughs> but well. Uh, I appreciate you coming on uh, the last yeah, time yeah. and this one. Um, yeah. I think there's definitely something people can get from this. Um, yeah. First of all, however dark and deep your hole is, if you eventually decide you want to get out of it, you can. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have any uh, final uh, thoughts, Kenyatta? I I do not, except to really thank you. You know, I know you've yeah. already spoken with Jack before, but um, 
I, I store like, thank you for allowing me to come and, and listen to you finish your story. I'll put it that way. I definitely appreciate your openness to be able to talk about because even people that go through something like what you've gone through and have come out the other side, they can, they'll talk about, you know, what they found since they've pushed through it, but they're not so open on the darker places that they've been to get there. And that's a certain amount of courage. That's an immense amount of courage it takes to be able to tell those kind of stories. So I appreciate that. I do. And I think, it, I think that's an important part of it. Yeah. Because it starts somewhere, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So we thank you for sharing. Absolutely. And it was good to meet you. And I wish you continued success and peace and continued evolution and growth. Ooh, I like that. Thank you guys. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. And um, uh, this is the part of the show where we are going to sign off. And I'm going to remind everybody, if you love what we're doing and you would like to help us out, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash hyperfocus pods. Cause we'd love us some coffee. We do. And like our pal Bob Barker always used to say, if you love your pets, please have them spayed or neutered. Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So with that, everybody, we're going to sign off and. And now folks, it's time to say good night. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.